Welcome to Indie Game Business, where you'll learn to navigate the industry with ease. Indie Game Business is recorded live on Mixer and produced by the Powell Group. Check us out at IndieGame.Business. Now, let's start the show with your hosts, Jay Powell and me, Indie. Are you looking for a publisher for your game? Well, we have something special just for you. It's the most comprehensive listing of PC, console, and mobile publishers in the industry. Over 700 companies sorted by platform with links to their websites. You can get the list at www.powellgroupconsulting.com slash publisher dash list. And you can get it for free. Check it out. Bethesda trolled, you know, hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people for a day, all watching a please wait screen while we tried to figure out what, you know, Vault Boy was doing. And then, and then what happened? Vault Boy just like went to sleep and that was it. And it was like, no, 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 the, ne the next day they announced Fallout 76, which one sounds like they skipped a load of sequels that I missed out on. And two, sounds like they're going to be doing some kind of crossover with Overwatch because now I just like have a picture of Vault Boy with a face mask on going, I've got you in my sights. Are you drinking beer again? I don't know. I ran out of water. Okay. Give me a <laughs> what happened? You work in this industry for 20 years. You start drinking midday. It's, it's you, know, you can't do anything about that. All my whiskey's gone. Um, I also saw there was a post online. I can't remember who did it. Oh, wait. I think it was... Um. B Sharp, was it B Sharp? Brian Sharon, he said, Oh, God, they did a great job of theming all of these thousands of gas stations to Fallout 76. And then he, there's pictures of 76 stations. <laughs> the old Gulf 76. Right. Thing. It wasn't like, that was like, it was that also, them doing some stunt like that was kind of cool, just like they, how Deadpool did the thing and they had Deadpool on a whole bunch of different products all over, just different unrelated products. Speaking of Deadpool, a new shirt. Where'd you get Deadpool shirt? That's uh, one of my six ninety nine loot loot shirts. Oh, shirts. dude, that's awesome! It says Cannonball literally, and there's a big Cannonball hole, and he's yeah, and it, and it, they come in my size, so that's cool. I, I just realized that my camera's still like offset from yesterday when we were you know playing oh, around. It's still offset. I'm not gonna put that right now. Um, <laughs> all right, so. Yeah, so Fallout 76 is going to be like an online multiplayer game like Rust, or they listed another one. So I'm sure they'll have more at E3 that they're going to go through. Right. We've only been live for like 10 minutes. That's another command I got to set up. Uptime. Uptime! Oh, I didn't even know that was a command. Yeah. There's oh. like followage is a command, and there's all kinds of weird commands we can mess around with. What's the what's the deal with the online aspect of Fallout seventy six? I, I, I think of, it's supposed to be multiplayer only. Yeah, that would be awesome. I wonder if people. I'm I've really gotten into role playing lately in and uh, in uh, Conan. I hope that it, people will be able to role play in it. That would be awesome. Fallout role play that would be sweet. Well, so Dragon, keep in mind, no one knows because Bethesda hasn't said anything officially. But according to sources that spoke to Kotaku or Kotaku or however you actually pronounce that. Um, that's what it is. And it's coming out of the studio that was down in Texas 
that they bought that was working on another online multiplayer game. So circumstantial evidence points that that's what it's going to be. Unfortunately, it's not another spinoff coming from Obsidian because that's what I think we were all hoping for. But something is better than nothing. Right. Um, so Wolverblade, the developer, and unfortunately, you know, my um, research is not going to pan out because I don't think it's been up long enough. The, the sales data isn't current on Steam Spy, so you can't tell exactly what it is but they put a chart out that has no numbers but just to show the discrepancy in sales of what they've sold on the switch versus xbox one ps4 and even steam yeah and it's it, ridiculous <laughs> ridiculous and then uh there in, in this article that i just posted there they just have um a month one month one visual comparison they sold literally one two three four five six seven and a half times the amount they sold on xbox one so like four it looks like if i were to just guess by looking at this 14 15 times the amount 14 yeah 15 times the amount than they sold on steam in the first month see i would have expected steam to be second on right. that list but i mean apparently not Wolver, um, have you played Wolverblade? Oh, it's a good game. It's, no, I haven't it's gorgeous. It and it's gorgeous. It's, um, it's, yeah, I mean, that, the discrepancy between Switch and everything, I can't say shocked me nearly as much as the fact that Steam came in fourth behind everything else. All of else. that, I know. Yeah. Um, I, I so would have figured it would have been Switch, Steam, Xbox, PlayStation. Yeah. But, yeah. But I mean, you know, the caveat to that is they could have sold like 20 copies on Steam, you know, but I, you know, I doubt that seriously, but you know, it, it would be good to see some actual, actual sales numbers in there. If we could get around to that at any point in time, but everybody's so secretive about it that, you know, chances are that's never going to happen. Top secret stuff, man. Top secret stuff. Uh, what I would like to see, I want to know if they, it was all just digital copies or if it was physical copies as well. And I would like to see a breakdown of that. Oh, it's 99% digital. I'm willing to bet you. 99.9%. I don't even know if they have a physical release for PS4 and Xbox One. I mean, they may, but... That, Wolverblade, yeah. Yeah, most, most of these games are being primarily sold... I mean, substantially, primarily sold. I used to Super. love the physical release and collecting, collecting that stuff. But you know what? The stuff that I've collected, I'm just like, God, it just sits there. It's not like I <laughs> now can display now you it. You shit your office that you don't. Exactly. That's exactly what it's like. I've got this physical release right here, Coffee Crisis. Check this out. This is a new game. Um, this is actually on a Sega Genesis cart. What? Yeah, but the game's on Steam and it actually has Twitch integration, but they also made Sega Genesis carts. You can't see it because of the game. Yeah, it opens you, up, has a little booklet and everything. So if you put it in a Genesis, will it work? Yeah, it'll work. Yeah, it's made That's for amazing. Sega Genesis. That's so the Twitch integration obviously won't, but... But... Wow. So, you know, in, in big, like 
huge company news, uh, Bluehole sued Epic this week in Korean court, which means that Tencent, a division of Tencent, sued another division of Tencent. Tencent, not Tencent. Tencent sued Tencent, basically. But no, Bluehole sued Epic because they're saying that Epic stole their game design or stole their, you know, whatever terminology they want to use. And so I don't know if it's easier for them to win and get a judgment in Korean court than it is in our court. I don't know how long that works out, but it's interesting that, you know, they raised all of that, you know, for last year when Fortnite came out and then they, you know, lost market share like nobody's business. And now they are actually suing them. So um, that's ridiculous. And it's because of similarity of experience. The experience of Fortnite and the experience of of PUBG are different. That's like saying, "Oh well, follow the, you know, um, Bethesda is gonna sue, freaking, whatever, you know." I I can't even think right now. Um, you talk about when they sued Mojang, or like Battleground, the company for Battleground or Battlefield is gonna sue Call of Duty. You know what I mean? It doesn't even make sense. Well, I mean. So some of it does for stupid ass U.S. rules. So like when Bethesda sued Mojang because the game that they were releasing was called Scrolls and that, you know, stepped on the trademark for Elder Scrolls. It is a stupid lawsuit and it should never be allowed to go, but it has to because if Bethesda doesn't do that, then someone else later on could you know, actually mount a legitimate, you know, campaign to steal the trademark of Elder Scrolls and they would lose because they didn't defend it against, you know, this one. And, and, and it's sort of U.S. copyright. Same with um, patents and all that stuff. It's just stupid antiquated, you know, antiquated laws that we have. So that's why I'm not, you know, I don't know if it's different in Korea. And that's why they sued him in Korea versus suing states so and it could be you know hell it could be a pr thing for all we know um you you never know um so the folks that did moonlighter which indie streamed a bit of this week did you like it did you like sincerely like it yeah it was was pretty fun it was pretty fun i like the idea of it i haven't played it yet though did you see what heine said in the chat there yeah I'm sorting through everything. I have too many. I am six months ahead and really work at the latest three months ahead to create buzz. 11 bit studios. Yes. Love 11 bit studios. I'm going to derail the train of thought again to to go back with a count with a a follow up question. So, where in the life cycle of the game should they look to put it on a streaming platform, Heine? That's the next step I wanted to know. I feel like every situation. It is to an extent. And that's what, that's what we're going to get. That's what I'm going to talk to you about on the bundles. Uh, depends on what the streaming service is aiming for. Well, yeah. I mean, you know this as well as anybody. There hasn't been a ton of successful outside of the consoles in the industry yet. So we're all hoping that um, we're all hoping that that changes at some point soon. Um. So the guys at Moonlighter did a uh, podcast or it was an interview. It was, you know, 
in there somewhere. Uh, it was on the Gama Sutra Twitch channel, and they talked about balancing contract work by bringing Moonlighter to life. And I don't know how many companies realize how insanely difficult that is to do, um, but it's something that you know I've tr I've done in my career. I've helped other companies do it, and I've also seen a lot of companies try it and fail it. You know. That that is how so many indie companies, you know, see their lifeline going. You know, they have this big, you know, game that they want to make, but they don't have enough money to make it. So they take contract work to pay for, you know, and they keep a little on the side to help finance the development of their original game. But what they don't end up realizing is, you know how insanely difficult it is to get off that treadmill of, of contract work. Because what typically happens is you do this contract work and if you don't plan correctly for it, then you're sitting there and you're never going to have enough money left over at the end of the project or during the project to finance the other one. And you're basically doing contract work for your entire career. Um, so I would, you know, definitely recommend, you know, if you're in that situation, um, take a look, listen to what they did and how they, um, you know, got through it because, you know, it, it is, I can't even count how many studios I've seen, you know, go under or never be able to make the game they want to make simply because, you know, they're on this treadmill of, of contract work day in and day out. And it is, and, and yeah, I mean, it comes down to good planning. I mean, so many studios don't know how to budget and don't know how to estimate the the cost and the time frame, and you know that's where if you're doing contract work, you absolutely positively have to be an expert at you know planning the project, budgeting appropriately, and being able to stand up and push back to you know the people that you're working for when they keep wanting changes and they won't keep yeah. wanting and, changes. And knowing your team, like knowing how long certain people take to do certain things. Because yeah. some programmers can just whip stuff out. Other programmers, not so much. And knowing who's on your team helps you big time estimate um, so that I, kind of stuff. I, a team in the Netherlands who's worked eight years on the same title, I would almost say that surprises me. But it's, it doesn't. It, doesn't. Car I mean, it really doesn't. Is that like a car zombie game? That up, car zombie. You know, I see it day in and day out. And, and, you know, to be completely clear, that's what killed my first, my first company, you know? So like 10 years ago, when I went out and started my first company, it was a production studio and we did, you know, we would work with like National Geographic and Nickelodeon and they would tell us the kind of game that they need to do the design and the, um, manage the production, but the studio, there were outside studios that were actually doing the work and we had a very stable business going on and then you know we decided to start doing original titles and we did one and it was successful and we did fine and then but the next two weren't and at that point you know you you you've spread yourself too thin and it doesn't it doesn't work and so you know, we had to we lasted three years which you know i was happy you know to make it that long but that uh it is not easy to do um so much props to, to those folks for... And, and for you never that. know what will happen. For example, Cliff Blazinski, yeah. Gears of War, bam! And he's like, I'm going to make my own studio and make this other game. And the game was like... Yep. And he, then he's done. 
I, that's exactly. it. He's done. And he he was like the most famous developer at that time. He was like a rock star developer. Yeah. I mean, he, he was going around and get, you know, he was in a very good position to get, you know, money coming in and, and, you know, financing from a whole lot of different people. But it shows you, yeah, it's like, you know, there is an awful lot to be said about, you know, being professional and, and planning correctly and looking at everything from a business point of view when it comes to your game. But you've also got to realize, you know, sometimes for better, sometimes for worse, you know, it gets completely out of hand sometimes. And, you know, things can simply go sideways. You know, I didn't expect, uh, what, what was the name of the game? I already forgot the name of the game. Uh, Lawbreakers. I expected it to do well. I didn't expect it to be like this you know, gigantic hit, but I did not expect for it to do as badly as it did. That that surprised me. Right. I know. I expected it. It's like, oh, I, I also think it was one of those things like there's been so many other games that have been just hyped. Just hyped. All the hype. It's like, oh my God, it's a Cliff Blazinski game. It's going to be freaking amazing. And then it's like, eh, the game was... The game was eh, but I think because it was hyped so much, it didn't build up to its hype, so it just got hammered. Like maybe if there wasn't so much hype to it, how awesome it was going to be beforehand, but you know that just oh, come on. You don't yeah. remember Daikatana? Daikatana? Uh. Uh-uh. John Romero's game, the big ad that came out in PC Gamer that said John Romero is going to make you his bitch. You know, and all of this press that went along for you know the entire development cycle of daikatana came out just a, a mess oh daikatana it was on the n64 i played that on the pc i didn't even know it was on the n64 so honey says on one side i totally agree but two dream problem i'm not making any money and when they fail let's do they have nowhere to go with no money. And yeah, but and, and that's a completely different problem. <laughs> but it leads to the very same thing. You know, you do, like you said, you do need a strong business, you know, and that's what I've been doing for, you know, luckily 20 years now. And so it's easy for me to sit back and say, you got to have a business guy on your team. But it's, you know, it's hard for a lot of these studios to understand, you know, the justification on on why they should be doing that because uh, it's not like an instant gratification type thing you know it's like studios should put as much money aside for marketing as they put aside for making the game but studios are like eh and so they have zero marketing budget and they can make an amazing game and then it's just nothing because they're trying to get as much free publicity and and whatever as they possibly can um and like i i have a guy that keeps reaching out to me about a game called Metal Tales, and it's an awesome game, but it's like here's some free keys, some free keys, from free keys, and it's a great game. But I don't think they had any budget for any kind of marketing at all, so nobody hears about it, even if it is on on. on. And, and see, this is where, and this can, I can take this, you know, different rant because it's something that drives me absolutely mad, and you see it in, you know, the communities with the industry. You see it on Reddit, you know. I think there are teams out there who feel like if they have a business guy and they start talking about how to market it and all this stuff, they're going to lose their indie cred, you know, and they're not going to be indie anymore, you know, because they will sell out and, you know, whatever. And it's bullshit. You know, it's absolute bullshit. You can still be successful 
and be an indie. You know, I see people on Reddit like bragging about how long they ate ramen. Dude, that's not something to brag about. That means you did not plan well somewhere along the line, you know, and so it, it, it ends up hurting them and they don't have markets and they don't know how to do PR and they don't know how to do a lot of the basic, you know, what I call the blocking and tackling, you know, that goes along with this, which is part of the reason that we like doing the stream is to kind of, you know, convey some of that knowledge out there. But if you, if you love making games and you love the industry, you absolutely 100% have to treat it as a business. Otherwise, you're not going to ever make enough money to continue doing it, you know, about the business. Yeah, exactly. Rami's great. I mean, yeah. he's another one that's out there and talking, you know, all the time about how important it is to do these sorts of things. And so I'm hoping that with enough people, you know, like that, that can catch on and, and you know, it's part of the stigma of, well, I don't want to do the business. I just want to make a great piece of art. Well, that's great. You know, make a wonderful piece of art, but don't expect to make another one unless you're just got, you know, family money or somewhere coming in on the side because you have to make it sustainable. And that's my side rant. <laughs> There's only one room for only room for one Rami. Not true. I think there's room for a bunch of Ramis. But you know what? A lot of game developers are not like, oh, wait, I don't want to be on social media. I don't want to do that kind of stuff. You know, and that's fine. I mean, you know, that's hire somebody. You know, that's the thing. It's like there are specialists out there. You know, my firm specializes in the business aspect of things. You know, people like Andy specialize in, you know, the streamer and the, you know, influencer marketing side of it. You know, I've got two other companies that I know, you know, good friends run that do marketing for companies. It's not free, but you have to plan for it. But these are things that, you know, you can do to go out there and make your, you know, make your game visible and, you know, and increase that level of success. Oh, I see what you're saying, Heine. And, and yes, Dr. Raj, the, the answer to the other part of that question is stream while we go off on random rants about, you know, the industry and the people in it. So with that said, let's get into the... The meat the and potatoes? Yeah, exactly. Is that what so, you're going to say, meat and taters? Meat, um, meat and taters. You know... As we talk about, you know, proper planning and, and all of that sort of stuff, you know, I completely and properly planned for this stream by finishing a blog post yeah, about three minutes before we went live um, that outlines a lot of what, you know, we're going to talk about because it's just easier for me to put it down in writing than it is for us to put it elsewhere. Um, and yeah, forgive the formatting because it really was posted up like three minutes beforehand. So, you know, what we want to talk about today is where to sell your game. And we're talking about PC games. Mobile games and console games are much easier. You sell it on the console and or the, the platform that you have with the notable exception of Android games. And there's like a bajillion stores out there for that. Um, so we're not even going to touch that. We're going to talk about PC games today. You know, where you should be selling it, you know, and, and how you should be selling it. And then we're going to get into the whole, you know, bundles and pricing and all that stuff too. So, you know, the first company is why, you know, it's out there, you know, why you need to do this, you know, discoverability, brand awareness, and then obviously revenue. Um, in 2015, there were 2,500 games released on Steam. 
2016, that went up to 4,700. Last year, over 7,000. So we're seeing a hockey puck near growth in you know the number of games launched on Steam. It's overcrowded. You know, you're not going to get discovered. You know, maybe you, you moved me. I know. <laughs> there. Sorry about that. Um, you've got to get, you know, you need to be on Steam away from being just on Steam. You know, and, you know, and Heine makes a good comment too. You know, markets like Japan and, you know, China now is huge. You know, there are not only different stores for those territories, you have to obviously local. There's different stores and there's also different cultural things you have to take into effect. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, so aside from, you know, just the discoverability, you know, you've got brand awareness. The more that you can get your game out there in more places, the more likely it is to be seen. And that's good for several reasons, but it's also, it helps the long tail of your product. And that's what the revenue part of it is. Obviously the more stores you're on, the more units you're going to sell, but you have to go into it realizing you're not going to sell as much anywhere else as you are on Steam. And you're not going to, I mean, in some cases, in many cases, you're not going to sell as much combined with all the other stores as you are on Steam. Unless it's Wolverblade. Exactly. This <laughs> is like shoots. But so we're looking at games that don't have console aspects of it. Because, yeah, you're right. I mean, and that article like shoots everything, you know, in the Out foot. The if we're looking at it like that way. But, you know, if. I think it's almost obvious if you can put your, but it may not be because how we end up doing this stuff is because things that I thought were obvious in the industry, people didn't realize. And, you know, that's what, sorry, hold on. I'm, re I'm reading Heidi's insights and I'm trading what I'm saying. I can also explain that while mobile games work so well in Japan and why it's not an example of how well it can do in other countries, they have a high amount of players in that market. All right, so what's the reason? Why are there, because I mean, we do, people that have played in mobile games for years know that the West is, or the East, whichever way we're going around the world, is so far different than, you know, North America and Europe. You know, Japan's always been different in, you know, the games that they played versus us, and now China. So is it because everybody is constantly on public transport and do they have the time to sit there and you know, play the mobile games. But we hardly talk to each other in metros too. <laughs> I was trying to make it look like I was talking to him. Gotta look. Well, we're gonna have to adjust your uh, your vo your voice um, thing because it cuts out. You can do that. Oh, that's, and I I turned off the. I don't have that noise noise gate on there right now. The noise gate's in OBS. Oh, I know, but I don't have it on. Well, it wouldn't matter because maybe it, it maybe, doesn't affect it's 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 the it's the setting in Discord. I'll I'll move the um the slider. Just slide it all the way to. The, it's, ah, all right. okay. it's all right if it's all the way. Up. Got it. I'll work on that. Thirty-three percent use public transport. Way higher than in the Netherlands. We are already a record of sixteen percent. I honestly figured. That 33% would be higher. I thought that, I mean, I, I thought there would be more people in Japan that used, used public transport than that. That's crazy. 
But yeah, that makes sense. I mean, everyone's sitting there on their mobile devices or on their Nintendo Switches. Yeah, now, now that you can carry that around. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, what you want to do when you're releasing this game is you have to plan for that long tail. You know, and it's, you know, the premise is there's going to be a lot of little sources that add up to, to bigger sources. And, you know, it's revenue that keeps coming in, keeps coming in, and keeps coming in. Um, but you also have to update all of your stuff on every platform every time you update the game. Yes, but that's not nearly as hard as it sounds. So, I mean, years ago, when I was working, when we transitioned the agency that I was working at into a publisher, we were doing casual games on PC. We would deploy a game to 30 different stores. And most of them had at least six localizations that went along with it. Mm -hmm. It's not, once you get a system in place, it isn't that hard to deploy updates when you get it done. It's all about, you know, how can you get it right the first time and then you build from there because that's how we did it. You know, we built a, a system for the first game and then we followed it through on the rest of them. And so that's typically the argument that you see coming back from a lot of studios is I don't have time to do this. You do have time to do this if you think it through and you do it correctly. You know, it's not something that, you know, you're going to have to have, you know, you're going to spend more time, you know, following up and maintaining a relationship with these stores than you are actually deploying updates. So, you know, that's something that's, you know, we can overcome. In terms of where, um, Amazon, even more so now with the growth of Twitch, you know, and making sure that you can have your game be available when someone's streaming it to instantly buy, that's a huge aspect of, you know, being discovered and, and, and driving sales. Um, Apple, obviously, if the game's a Mac game. Uh, Gamersgate, which is not the controversy. It's the, you know, store that was long around long before that and then just kind of got roped into it through bad, you know, luck. Um, but that's that was the store started by Paradox back in the day. And it's still going and it's still out there and you still move units. Mm, excuse me. Uh, Green Man Gaming is another one. Humble Bundle has their own store now. So Humble went from just doing the bundles that we all know to not only having a dedicated store just like Steam, but they actually have a publishing division too. So you can go to, you know, present your game to Humble and have them publish it. Uh, their first one just came out recently and I know what it was. It was a big hit, but I can't remember off the top of my head. In what Indi it was. Indigala did that too. They published games. And yeah. Fanatical, you can also buy just like a single game. So. Yeah, and I had them listed in the bundles, but I didn't have them listed in the store. Good catch, Andy. Um, Itch.io and the Windows Store. And we're very, you know, we in the game industry as gamers are very prone to looking at something and going, nobody ever buys anything there because we think like we think. You know, we think, you know, along the lines of I buy all my games on Steam, I get my bundles through Humble, you know, I get my, you know, whatever. We have these worlds that we're, you know, locked into is you know 
there are people that are outside the, you know, the core world like we do who do shop at these stores who do, you know, and so you can actually drive, you know, some money in there. So I says one problem I have with most of the platforms is they're trying to get the same audience dividing the same pile and more and more making it harder for developers to keep all those platforms in mind. And yes, you are dead right. Um, you know, they are going after the same audience and, you know, frankly, they're not doing, I mean, Steam has such a market share on everybody that it's, you know, beyond impossible to, to catch up to them, barring something absolutely catastrophic. Um, but, you know, that's where, you know, there's, there's a, some guys out in San Francisco are working on a new store that is going to be blockchain based. So you'll actually be able to resell your games that you don't play anymore legally and legitimately you know humble came out and you know immediately broke that barrier by saying we're going to put you know bundles together that we're going to give money to charity and that gave them a point of differential and now amazon has finally you know stepped up and with if you buy games through twitch and through the you know they're trying to get everybody to install the the new Twitch client versus just going through the website and you'll get, you know, loot crates basically that drop and, you know, give you items for, you know, that you can use on Twitch or, you know, in games or whatever. And that's a new little something that's in there. But I agree with you, you know, having a bunch of stores that target the same exact audience, you know, isn't going to really further the industry. There are companies that are trying to do something different but, you know, for developers, you know, in order to maximize that long tail of revenue, you've got to think through it. And unfortunately, right now, that means you got to go and put it on a lot of places. But, you know, I will assure you, I've done this. It's not as hard as most people think to, you know, to get out there and get you in a lot of these stores. So at Utomic, we will plug you because we love your Discord server, honey. Mm. We want to get the former gamers, families, successful adults who want to play quality games but don't need to own the games as much as other people do. So trying to get the same gamers that suddenly popped up with a Wii, but their lack of curation drove the audience away. And that's a good audience to go to because, you know, there are, I mean, truthfully, I should be in that audience, but I'm not. I'm stubborn and I keep buying games that I never end up playing. But, you know, there is a huge market for that. You know, our generation grew up making games. I'm in my 40s. Andy's in his forties. You know that's. Are you? I was trying to be nice. You look young, Andy. You I know, am. I'm, I'm thirty-two. Oh yeah. See, you know it's. We're not all going out. You know, my college buddies. We had fights break out in the room over Mario Kart matches. You know, on the N sixty-four because somebody got hit with a blue shell. We were all passionate gamers back then. Now we're not. It's me, and you know a couple of others. But there's absolutely a market out there for the people that aren't those core gamers and, you know, getting in there. But sorry, honey, this is a publisher problem. Y'all have got to find them. I mean, a, a, a store problem, not a publisher problem. But, you know, the developers, yeah, they do. They just, they really have to continue, you know, to keep up with, you know, everything that's out there mm -hmm. and stay in front of it and keep their games on these platforms. You know, that's just the the sad reality of it you know you're gonna have to do that to you know to stay current and stay out in the industry um 
Yeah, and you know, by all means, anybody's got questions along the way, just absolutely throw them up in there. We I mean, so were what, one of those families that bought a Wii, and man, we played the crap out of it for like three or four days. Just all, <laughs> yeah, it's awesome. And then it sat for five months, and I'm like, babe, I'm selling this crap. Man, I bought like four controllers, and I bought some stuff, and yeah, we we literally played it for like three or four days, and that was we just never touched it, and it got dusty. And I'm getting rid of it. See, we played ours for a long time. I mean, and we had ours like before our son was even born. And then we had it so long that the optical drive died. So I modded it so it would run from, you know, a hard drive. And we still played it. We didn't get rid of it until I think we bought the Switch. Then I had the option of getting a Wii U, um, a PS4, or an Xbox One, which I didn't have any of those. And stupid me choose the. I didn't see. I didn't. I didn't follow that grenade. I, didn't, I did. I didn't the Mario game, game was great. That's what I wanted. That was the hype at the time. Was that Mario World game? And I got it. And it's a great game. But other than that, it's just kind of man, eh, kind of sits there. But and so Heidi's got a point. Since we all know people who bought a Wii and never played it before or stopped mm-hmm. playing it, but the bad games made them stop playing it two to three months. And that's that is where Nintendo has done so much better with the Switch than literally every other console they put out. Because they have never really cared or supported the third-party developers. It's been, I'm going to put a console out there so I can sell Zelda, Mario, you know, Mario Party, Donkey Kong, and there'll be some other games along the way from other people who are really going to crap. You know, that's pretty much the mentality that they had. And this time, you know, with them really going in and supporting, you know, the indie teams, it's... That's why they've been as successful as they have in the last couple of weeks. I mean, the last couple of months or years. It's been out a year now. I don't even know. It's good. So, And there's lots of great games all the time. And you get to play free demos and all kinds of stuff. Yes. And I've already caught myself buying second copies on the Switch for games I already own on the PC. I did that this week on Fire in the Flood because it was on sale for like $5 on the eShop. And I'm like, yes, I will play this on the Switch for $5, without a doubt. Yeah. So we've got the links up on the blog post that I posted. And if you click the link on each store site, it's actually going to take you to the developer portal or to where the information is on where you actually need to submit your game. I didn't just like link to the front of the store and make you make you look for it. Um you know, we go into why isn't everyone doing it? And it's mainly time. You know, people don't, especially indie teams, don't have the time and the resources to go around doing this or they don't feel like they do, and so they don't do it. Which, you know, it does lead to bigger opportunities on some of these secondary sites because there aren't as many games up there, and it is easier to get a little bit of visibility. So let's say you've got your game and you've launched it on all these stores and everything's going well, and then, you know, well, actually, we need to backtrack about that. We got to talk about pricing, right, Indy? Yeah, let's talk about pricing. So, what are your thoughts? Uh, I mean, you obviously are face first into this side of the industry as well. So, where where do you feel? What are your thoughts on indie teams and how they price their games right now? Are you talking asking me or Heine? I'm asking you. Me. I think that a lot of developers like, well, oh, we'll do this for five or six dollars. Don't do that. Because 
if when I look at a five or six dollar green, my head just goes, oh, this is going to be garbage. So I'm not even really going to consider it more than likely. Sometimes I might look at a game and oh, this looks awesome and then see the price. But something that is that cheap, that's what I just call it. It's not inexpensive. It's cheap. I, I really think like $9.99 is a, a good pr a good price to put it at because you're looking at it and you're not like, well, it's not too expensive, but it's not super cheap, but it's still maybe a kind of meh game. Then we get up to like 15 or $16.99. That's always a good one to my ear for some reason. I'm thinking this game just might be pretty good. and But if it's not good, I'm really disappointed. I'm like, this should be a $5 game. <laughs> Maybe I shouldn't have bought this. Roche so, Fusion, the team lead asked 12 bucks, which for a shmup was too high. So it depends on the type of genre. Arcade games are tougher to sell for 10 or higher. But yeah, I can see that with arcade games. I can so, see that. But as far as like any other kind of indie game, something that's like $5.99, I'm probably not going to. So there's that, that known psychological effect that just like you said when you look at something that's five dollars or three dollars or whatever you're just like i'm not this is probably crap i don't i don't want to you know go out there and do this you know the other aspect is and this is what you know i i constantly talk about you can always drop the price of a game you can never raise the price of a game you see amazon does this not necessarily on their games but on you know a lot of things when amazon runs a sale It'll say, you know, it'll have a slash through it. And it'll say 80% off or whatever the number is. If you Google that product, it's not 80% off. They've increased the, you know, retail price on the site to make it look like it has. But quite frequently, things that are on sale are really just at the same price you can find them on other places. But people don't think about it. They see it's on sale and they go. When you... You know, my personal thought on this is, and I'll say regardless of genre, you need to be launching games at 15 to $20 as an indie studio. You know, if you look at, you know, median prices on games for Steam, you know, a lot of them are in that range of, you know, somewhere between 5 to $15. But that's a median price. Think about how many games are cheap on Steam versus how many $60 releases are out there. You know, that 15 to 20 price point is a good starting area. And, and if you can't justify 15 to 20, then you need to look at what's in your game. You know, you need to make sure that you're putting something that's, you know, out there that's good, you know, and, and that justifies that thing. And you can do that through one common sense if you're a gamer. But to, you know, doing some initial, you know, feature price comparisons, you know, looking at what's out there right now, does your game have what they have? You know, you can look at, you know, gameplay, number of weapons, number of levels, all the different ways that you can, you know, categorize your game. And I'm trying to pull up the, like right now on this, on Steam, but I looked at it earlier today. And if you go under the indie things, the ones that are up there in that top 10, let me make sure before I said this, now one of them's free, that doesn't count. Um, there's a couple of them further down that are under $5, but the majority of the ones that up and stay there 
especially like on the top sellers page, they're all at least $15 mm -hmm. because that's where, you know, people perceive that value and it's not that big a deal. I mean, how many games that you wanted that looked interesting to you, did you not buy because they were instead of $10, they were $15 or $15, $5 or it was $15, you know, there's a, there's a mentality of it that goes around by making your game appear to be too cheap. But the other side of it is, you know, you can always do a sale. You can always lower the price of your game. You can't ever raise it. And, you know, a lot of the revenue, especially for indie games, comes from things like the spring sale, the summer sale. Anytime these things go on sale and everybody gets a little email, I got one today that said, you know, a, you know, a game on my wish list is on sale. You know, um, hold on, I'm getting derailed. I always get derailed by chat. <laughs> Ooh, what are y'all saying? Um, so yeah, I'm gonna stop right there with that train of thought while I, you know, catch up on what everybody's, you know, saying here. Um, uh, he says I partly agree, but I would go ten years back with the current market. You kind of already said you can't raise. Yeah, okay, we're good on that one. Are there any exceptions for the 15 to $20 price you're talking about? I'm familiar with the marketing idea that price is too low, reduces the perceived value of the game, but I still balk at the idea. Don't, all right, so why do you balk at that idea? What kind of, you know, we can, we can dive into your game right now if we want to. Yeah, let's, let's link us to your game. You got somewhere where your What's game is? What's the game? Why do you not, you know, feel like that's a good price, you know, for it? And, you know, let's talk it through. Because regardless of whether or not, you know, the game is a good value at five or $10 or whatever, it's, it's more, you've got to kind of get out of that mentality. You need to make sure your game's competitive and that, you know, it's going to be something that stands out on the market. But if it's not, it's not something that, you know, five to $10, you know, dropping the price is going to help with, you know, a game that doesn't look appealing to a user at $20 is still going to be not appealing to that user at $5. Fates of four. All right. Oh, Fates of four. All right. So how, I mean, all right. Give me an idea here. Is it, all right. So you're still in development. Where What's your timeline, do you think, in terms of when you're going to, you know, have it out there and be ready to go with it? And yeah, honey, I agree with you. You've got, just look at your Steam store. Across all reviews, you had a very positive, you know, rating. You could have, yeah, you could have justified a higher, I mean, you could have sold at a higher price point on that. All right, so you've got an RPG. You've got a capability of having a lot of depth in it. You're, you, I mean, you're, you're doing the pixel art style, which, you know, you'd ask me five years ago, I'd be like, no, don't do that. It looks like crap and nobody's going to buy it. But that mentality has changed even with me. If you're doing a fantasy RPG, there should be enough content in there to justify that 15 to 20 
dollar price point. Don't get too self-critical on it. You know, look at the other games that are out there that you're that you're shooting for. You know, other games that are literally going to be a competitor. You don't have to worry about you know fighting for box space anymore. You know, at Best Buy, but you do have to think about somebody's got ten dollars or twenty dollars they're willing to spend on a game. Why would they buy mine over the other one? And take the dollar part completely out of it. You know, because if someone has twenty dollars, they know they're going to spend on a game. They're going to spend twenty dollars on a game. They're not going to go, oh, I could get four games that are five dollars, or I could get one game that's twenty. They're going to get the game that's twenty. You know, because they're going to have a perceived value. You know that it's better. So, hmm. what what do you think, Andy? I I would have really have to see more of the game because it looks pretty simple. A stick right. Well, I know. We're, we're still in development. He's still in development, though. Right. Why would it really have to see? Because there's not like any videos of it. It's just kind of screenshots with no GUI. True. Oh, right, so I don't I'm know gonna... like how extent the gameplay is, the action. The I, I'm gonna you know break it apart from the from the marketing points. You know the things that you're gonna put in your game. You know what used to go on like the side of the box. Now it goes like in your Steam. So one, multiple spells to discover and combine with elements for varied effect. Regardless of how deep that system is in reality, that gives the perception that, you know, you've got a very in-depth spell. You can go, I used to love on Elder Scrolls, the one before, uh, what was it? You used to be able to like combine spells and make your own spells and, you know, you could make them ridiculously overpowered, but it added a lot of, of depth to the game and it adds longevity to the play style. So, you know, marketing point number two and kudos top brush for actually already having this stuff, you know, laid out because you've done a very good job with your, your unique selling points in this gear to find. That tells me I can replay this game over and over and over. It's not going to be a, I'm going to you know, play it, get the story, and I'll be done with it. And then finally, this one, NPC interactions that fundamentally alter the course of the story progression. Again, if that's true, we're not talking about if it's true yet. You know, we're just saying, looking at what we've got, you know, that tells me even if it is linear and there, it's not, you know, a roguelike and it's not going to change every single time, I can play through it again to see how my interactions change the course of the game. Those three things right there all point to the fact that you've got a lot of replayability in your game. And if your game has a lot of replayability, you need to be charging more for it. And that there's some depth. There's yes. some depth to it. Some depth that you got to think about, depth that you get to experience. Stuff you may or may not come across or find or may, may not be able to figure out in the first run. I'm not the kind of person to replay another game, but I know that a lot of people are. And that's the kind of exactly the kind of stuff that they look for. I don't even know how many times I've restarted Fallout 4. I've never finished it. I have like hundreds, if not a thousand legitimate that, hours. In that's it. me and Dark Souls. Yeah. Well, that's everybody in Dark Souls. I've, I've never beaten it, but I always restart it with a different character. I'm like, eh, I'll just delete this one. And then... 
Put a hundred hours into it, and then uh, stop playing for some months and delete it. And, and then you got to start over again because you don't remember where your character was and all that kind of good stuff. You and don't remember, yeah, cycle. what the character does or. So, so Crytek says, I want to give an example of my game. We're making a game pretty similar to Papers, Please. There are ways, there are way to lessen this. Yes. But being under 10 bucks, which is what Papers, Please costs, would be a huge marketing advantage. No, Papers, Please has been out for years. Yeah, and that's why it it's costs It's an old a game. Mm -hmm. The price you know, went down. It used to be like 20-something, didn't it? I don't remember what, I don't remember what it Your was. Your relationship is the dark souls of relationships. <laughs> God. I forgot why I was dating this woman. I'm going to go date another one. My love life is the Dark Souls of, yeah. <laughs> I'll come back to her in six months and put some more hours into her. I'll never finish her, but. Well, that could be multiple different things. Anyway. I got to come know, back and respec everything. Don't look at, you know, titles that have been out for as long as Papers, Please have as an example because they have a huge advantage on you in simply you know the fact that they have such name recognition and all that kind of good good stuff right. so you know i don't remember what papers please first released at i think it was 20 something i think yeah you could easily if you have a game with that amount of depth you know and that amount of i mean and let's be honest here you could, I know they went for a particular art style on Papers, Please, but, you know, the game looked like something I played on my, you know, Apple II GS back in the day. There are, you know, things that you can go and, you know, you can justify taking a game like this and putting it out at 15 $20. Don't go chasing somebody else's game that's been out since 2013. You know, Jeez. you're going after a five-year-old five game. So, yeah, that that that's there's there's your answer, Crytek. Don't don't judge your new game by by that one. So, did you play Papers, Please? Me? Yeah. No. Oh, dude, you got to play it. I was I like, right, so I'm not into this. And then I played it. I'm like, this is awesome. Here's the problem, and this is why you know I'm like catching up on games now, like Fire in the Flood that came out two years ago. You know. It came out in the heyday of me playing WoW. And when I was playing WoW, it's like all I played. You know, I have all my max level characters and I was raiding and I was doing all this stuff. I didn't have time to play other games so I was playing mm -hmm. WoW. That's why I quit playing WoW. So yeah, you're right. I do need, and you know what? Industry hipster. The reality is I may actually own it somewhere you probably and I don't do. even know it. Industry you know? hipsters. Yeah, you know, I, I had retro graphics before. I, I had a Commodore 64. That was my first console. Commodore 64? I mean, my first computer. Yeah. yeah. Me too. I had, remember having to load a game, it'd take like 20 minutes by tape. The Snoopy, the Snoopy Red Baron game? Oh, I had uh, Telenguard. That was my first actual, like, suck me in game. It's actually online now. You can play it in a browser, but it took like 20 minutes to load up. It's a dungeon crawler. No, I, we had the tape drop and I had a Snoopy Red Baron game and we would literally put it in the tape drop and then go eat dinner and come back. And sometimes it had loaded, sometimes it hadn't. Oh, nice, um, Crytek. Awesome, dude. Are you guys doing, are you doing like a revenue share with them? Or, I mean, I know that's nosy, but. Exactly. How much are you paying this guy? Uh -huh. You know, it's, 
I've always said, if you make it five years in this industry, you're considered a veteran. And then I look in back and go, well, I've been doing this 20. Yeah. That must make me insane. That's, that's the only thing I yeah, can come uh, up with. Ageism. Uh, uh, you know what? I had, I had an Atari 2600. I think I had a Pong console too. I actually have a picture of me and my grandma sitting there playing Atari 2600 in 1976, the year it came out, or 75. Age counts in this industry. There's ageism in this industry as well. There age counts if you're a consultant. It is hard as hell to find a job when you're our age. I mean, it. that's actually part of the reason that I started the consulting firm. And well, you've only been doing this five years? I thought you were sick in the head like the rest of us. You know, you've been doing this forever. Yeah, I mean, that... One of the reasons I started my firm seven or eight years ago was because it was such a pain in the ass to find a job. And then because I had so many peers my age who were in the same boat, I was able to start and have a whole bunch of knowledge in immediately because none of us could find jobs. Oh, congrats, Crytex. That's awesome to have somebody that is passionate about your project. On Yes, that is absolutely key. You worked for Hallmark. That's cool. Did you write the sad cards? If I worked for home, I'd I'd have some messed up cards. Is it true that most of our holidays are made up by Hallmark just to sell cards? Well, you know that you know that wedding rings, the diamonds in a wedding ring, was a PR manufactured thing. They only started doing that in like the 1800s because there was a, a massive amount of diamonds, and they're like they only sold diamonds to people that could afford it because they would hold back the diamonds. Right. But still like, How can we sell this to everybody? And so they made this massive campaign of diamonds are a girl's best friend, you know. And so now every wedding ring has to have a diamond in it. That was all a marketing. Nineteen ten to nineteen twenty. Yeah. Isn't that crazy? And it's still stuck. But anyways, well, we digress. Until people stop you, stop doing your crap and we have synthetic diamonds everywhere. Well, and, I don't know. know. My ring is like my ring is the. And I did get Rochelle a diamond ring, but mine's carbon. Nice. I don't need gold. I had a buddy playing play for um, played the NFL, and he went and got a box of about twenty rings, and they were made. They weren't like all gold. I mean, they were they were you know a little lower key because he knew he would lose them and he would get in trouble. So if he lost one, he just went to his locker and put another one on, and, and he was good to go. Yeah. Oh, Crytex. Do we test prototypes in three? Actually, we just started. It's called Feature Creep. And yep. we do that every Wednesday. Did you want us to uh, feature creep your game on Wednesday? We you haven't picked a game play yet. It and tear it apart. Yeah. We haven't picked a game yet. All we need is two builds or two keys. Game Dev Company. Hey, Game Dev Company. Here, I, I oh, can, we're getting raided. I What's can up, counter- Raiders? Hey, Fuzzy, what's up, dude? How's it going, man? Raiders, thank you guys for the raid. Awesome. Appreciate that. Oh, yeah. It's our first raid. Wow. What's up, dude? Fuzzy, good to see you too, man. We met and we we had some... We we met met at a bar. No, we met... um, (laughs) So all relationships are interesting. Yeah, we met at GDC. We're now we're gonna have to start the whole freaking thing over again. A bar. We met in a bar. He he was trying to pick me up. 
Game on. You're in good company. Thank you, guys. What are we talking about? We're talking about um, where and how to sell your game. Sorry. That's something in my eye. All right. We're back. Oh, I thought you were filling up your beer again. No, I should have, though. Anyway. Uh, <laughs> I've got cold coffee, so. So what were we talking about? I don't, we've been talking about, you know, games and stores and pricing, but then we, we've also been derailed on several tangents along the way. Diamonds. Santa Claus. Diamonds. The fact that Hallmark makes up, you know, cards, I mean, makes up holidays for us and, you know, all that kind of good stuff. Chicken pot pie. Yes, we did. That was awesome. With Kenny, Kenny Roy. Tangents are your specialties. What were you, were you just streaming, right? Game Dev Company, is that whose stream it was or? And what were you streaming? Thank you guys for the follow. These are our super custom alerts. Nobody has them but us. (laughs) Nobody has it except the other people that haven't changed their default settings. Yeah, you know, that's aside from those people, it's absolutely you know it's just us. One quick question: Yes, the two of us. Oh, do you want to go first? Yeah, oh, you know I mean? well, let me read the question out loud. Uh, read the question. I'm, um, the two of you. What roles you have in game development? Are you game developers yourself? Well, okay, I'll go first. I started out as a 3D animator, and then I actually developed my own game. But I've worked in other studios. And I started live streaming on Twitch, and I'm like, this is way cooler than being an animator. But I'm actually a graduate from Animation Mentor, and so I like studied under people that worked at Pixar and Blue Sky as a 3D animator. And then I got into live streaming on Twitch, and through that, I started doing brand ambassador ship type things, PR, community management and influencer marketing. So what I do now is I stream and have fun and mainly work um, doing influencer marketing, social media, PR, and also some consulting here and there and jack of all trade-ish. But my main focus is like Twitch influencer type things, I guess. It's kind of, it's kind of a ball of stuff. So uh, what about you, Jay? So I do the business in the industry and I've done it for 20 years now. So I started out as an agent, you know, I worked and got some of the first deals for companies like Paradox and Starbreeze, um, Dice, Heimamont games are still around to this day. I did that for seven years and then we transitioned that, you know, company into a publishing company and that publishing company ended up being bought by Playdom and then bought Playdom was bought like immediately by Disney. Uh, I did biz dev on the developer side and for the last seven years, then I had a production company that I started still doing biz dev and licensing. And then for the last seven years, I've been running my own consulting firm that deals with the business and the marketing and the licensing in the industry. And so this whole stream came from, you know, part of my, my firm's ability. I lost my train of thought there, but you know, I realized about five years ago that we had knowledge internally that we were taking for granted. And then we assumed that the you know next generation of developers knew, but they didn't. And, you know, it was our own fault for not realizing that. So we started putting together white papers and things like that to, you know, help people learn how to, you know, publish their self-publish the game they want to do it or find a good publisher if they wanted to, or, you know, work on their marketing or, or a lot of this stuff that, you know, that we knew how to do. And then, you know, about two months ago, I sat down with Indy and I was like, hey, why don't we just do this on Twitch? Because 
I wanted to learn more about the streaming side of it, you know, anyway. And so we're up to, what is this, our seventh show now? Um, and yeah, that, and that's what we're doing. So the whole purpose of this stream and this channel is to, you know, help developers learn and answer questions and educate them on, you know, different aspects of, you know, the business end of the industry so they can be successful and keep making the games that they love how to make. Yeah. So you got a wow, and I just got, you got a wow cool. <laughs> and I didn't get anything. I feel bad. No. Yeah. So uh, we have uh, two shows right now. We have this one that's every Thursday at 1230 Pacific Standard Time or Daylight Time. Just straight indie game business where we have different subjects. No. Wow. Cool. Both of you. I got you. And then on Wednesday, we just started another one called Feature Creep. Yes, these streams are on YouTube. It's called Feature Creep, and we, where we kind of break apart a game and tear it apart with our opinion criticisms. Yes, we post them on YouTube. Got to watch the backlog. It's also on Twitch, too. If you click the videos thing above there, I've got them organized, and I update them and organize. So if you go to that link that I just posted, it's the indie game marketing videos. And so on YouTube, in addition to this stream, we've started basically curating and cataloging conference lectures. We try to keep it current, you know, nothing past two years ago, unless it was just something that's absolute evergreen stuff that you need to know. But we've got different sections set up in there where, you know, I'll go through and look when these conferences post new lectures and then put them in there so you can sit down and if you want to know you know here's a batch of lectures about marketing and here's a batch of lectures about business and law and there you go so that's on youtube with all of this stuff i want to break well. in here you hit your goal jay we hit, we Did hit we? your goal yes 103 woo awesome thanks tritex we'll, yeah. we'll see you you know next week as well that's awesome thanks everybody. thank you yeah, thank you guys. And also, we got a subscribe button too. We got affiliate like after like two weeks. Ooh, I like that one. That is nice. Game dev, game dev. We've got our indie game one, and then we've got our 10 out of 10. Then we got me doing the face palm. But uh, <laughs> I'm still learning the streaming side of it and trying to keep up with everything, you know, the way that indie knows how to do. You know, a lot of times I get overwhelmed by chat and everything else going on. So I get There's my face derailed. <laughs> so a lot, for those of you who came in late, for those of you just joining us, a lot of what we talked about in terms of the stores and things that you can sell at uh, are on, you know, that link that I just posted. We just put a blog site. Um, I mean, I just put it on, on the blog for our company site. Uh, so you'll find, yeah, all of that is right there. Um, we had talked about pricing and for a variety of reasons, you know, we all feel that you should be pricing your indie game at 15 to $20. Don't price it lower. So, um, oh, indie game. Yes, I will absolutely do that. Game Death Company. I've got some friends over in that division as well, but I don't know. Amazon so pillared and everything that I get derailed, but yes, I will absolutely do that. Um, so we talked about why to, why to price your games at $15 to $20. Um, and then we were going to get into bundles and, you know, where you should bundle and why and when. Um, there's not a set answer 
you know, it's like we were talking about with, with, um, with streaming sites, you know, it's not like you can sit down and say, my game's been out for three months. My game's been out for six months. Now I need to look at getting in a bundle. Mm -hmm. The best thing you can do is look at your sales. When your sales go down and they start plateauing, you need to, you know, bump them back up again. You need to raise some, you know, recognition. So that's when you, you know, that's always the best time to go and say, you know, we're going to do a bunch of, you know, bundles, be it on Humble or um, we don't, I don't have the list. I have a list. We didn't, I didn't post the list in that same blog post. Um, but we'll, we can put together, I have them listed, listed. I don't have them like with URLs. But, you know, Humble Bundle, Indigala, Fanatical, uh, Groupies are, you know, some of the bigger ones out there that you can go to. You know, you're going to make some money on a bundle. You're not going to make tons and tons and tons of money. You know, but again, it's, you know, part of trying to keep everything, you know, front of mind with everybody and keep your, you know, make sure people know you're out there. Not just the consumers, but, you know, the store reps too, you know, because that's what, you know, the way that these sales work, you know, on the back end, behind the scenes, you know, as a developer, you're always going to have options to like, you know, put yourself in for, you know, the summer sale and some of the bigger sales. But, you know, some of the more, you know, like weekday sales or, you know, the weekend sales, but, you know, those are usually a lot of times invite only. And so the better relationship that you have with your store rep, be it at Amazon or Steam or, you know, Home Bundle or whoever, the more options you're going to have to be in on that. And yes, I, I agree. Bundling needs to be a part of the bigger plan, which also goes back to the, you know, premise, not premise, but the reality of you have to have a plan. So you get that plan and you have to put things in there like bundling. You need to be able to look at your sales cycle and say, okay, we did pretty good for two weeks on Steam, you know, and then it went downhill from there. You know, at what point, you know, do you sit down? And it's going to vary from studio to studio and game to game. But you want to make sure at the end of the day, you're staying front of mind. And if that means that you have to go on sale, you know, two weeks after you launch, well, that's what that means. I mean, you know, if you're not selling units, then you're going to have to do something to put it back up. A lot of studios actually launch with a sale and then, you know, put it back up. I'm not 100% in favor of that. You know, because I always think that, you know, if you've got people that are following your game, let's see, the, <laughs> do you recommend launch sales? Me? No, I don't. If, you know, you're out there and you are, you know, you've got a wish list and you've got followers on your game, those people are going to buy your game day one. You know, you're talking about if you have a $20 game and you put a 25% off for launch, you're selling it at 15 bucks, you're losing 25% of your revenue. Because those people that come out, you know, day one and buy your games, they're going to buy them anyway. Sell them at full price. And then, you know, put them on sale later. I'm not, I know a lot of studios do it. I'm not a favor of, of launch day sale. Sale, sale I mean, the first I think day. Just, yeah. I think you're just throwing away money. I think also to keep track of your, you, you need to not just keep track of your sales, but you need to like keep track of what is happening that day. Like for example, 
bunch of big streamers play your game. You need to note on this day and sales go, you need to note that. Otherwise you're just gonna have a graph of your sales doing this and you're gonna be completely lost. But we talked about something like that, about like we're keeping a CRM, keeping track of your contacts and what. So it's really along those lines. Super well, I mean, important even to know, you know yeah. this tweet got 20,000 retweets or whatever. And, and this, this is it affected it. You know? So, and, and that is something that, you know, I didn't know, but yeah, I mean, you're dead right. I mean, for a variety of reasons, one, not only because you need to understand how other games and other releases and world events, you know, affect the sales of your game, but it also helps you understand what marketing is working and what marketing isn't. You know, if you can take your timeline of, say you launch your game, it's out for a week, it starts going down, but then you run a Facebook campaign campaign. And you know, it's hard to actually look at the Facebook stats of that ad and say, is this making money or not? You know, you can see them if you click through and that sort of stuff. But you know, when you can look back and say, we ran it and our sales went a little bit up, it's not gonna be conclusive, but you know, having a record of not only your sales, but what happened, you know, what you did and what you know things that, you know, happened otherwise, you know, did to affect your game. You look at the, um, they had the, the bus killed a bunch of people in Canada and the developers that were doing the, you know, Death Road Canada game had to wait and stop and, you know, not launch for a week or two because they didn't want to get wrapped up in that. You know, it's one side of it is, you know, it's respectful to the people that were involved in it. The other side of it is, you know, smart business decisions. Um, on, the, on the other hand, just to go on a little tangent, that game that was just released called Active Shooter, where you oh, are nice. an active shooter and you go out, and that game was up for a couple days and then totally got banned, and the developer got any of his games taken down that were on there. And, Do you think it's that, all right to price a game at five or six bucks, or six, six bucks approximately for like the first game or something? No. No, I don't. You well, missed us all just talking about this stuff, but that's okay. We can talk about it again. If you just think of it personally, you go on Steam and you're looking through games. Are you going to go like, oh, this game is $5. Do I want to buy it? Or is it a cheap? Is this game going to be bad because it's $5? Or are you looking at a game that's like $9.99? Is, you feel like it's going to be cheap or is it going to be a good game or it's going to be an okay game? Then you look at a 15 or $20 game. I, I just think it's like your perceive your perception of what you think that will be. You price it too low is bad. bad. You'll, you'll never hear me say that, you know, I'm a fan of, of launching a game that you worked. I mean, how long did you work on that game and you're going to launch it at $5? You're not valuing your own self as much as you're not, you know, paying attention to the, to the economy. Uh, so Theories Open says you piss off a lot of players if you put it on sale too early if you sold it at full price first. You know what? Tough shit. You're, you're, <laughs> you're, if your game is selling well and you had enough people buying it at full price, you wouldn't need to put it on sale. You know, you're not out. In, and I know you, you you cultivate a very good relationship with your fans as you go along, but you know, your fans aren't going to always turn around and buy every single game you do just because it has your game. And quite frankly, you know, and I'm not, I'm not trying to, you know, piss on fan relationships here or anything, but by the time your second game comes out, they're not going to remember you did that anyway. 
you know, people have a very short memory in this this industry. You know, you look at games that are embroiled in controversy, and then you know, six months later they're fine. But you have to look out for you. You know, you're not going to you're going to do more positive upside, lowering the price of your game, bringing more revenue into your company, and being able to stay around and keep making more games than you are going to lose because you know your game wasn't selling and in the next week or so you had to put it on sale you put it on set you know after that first spike is put it on sale for a day or two don't put it on sale permanently but don't you you can't get wrapped up in how angry somebody's going to be if they bought it full price because for every one person that does that there are nine more that that already happened to five years down the road five years earlier and they're you know very hesitant and gun shy anyway it's not your fault but they're the ones that sit around and don't buy anything until it goes on sale anyway. So, yes, your fan relationships are important, and and you know you don't need to just you know shit all over them basically. But at the same day, same time, you need to take care of you. You know, you need to be doing what is right. You know, by your title and keeping your company in business and your employees paid, or you know, if it's just you, you paid, so you can continue doing this for years to come. Okay, so Game On is talking. He's the one that asked about the five dollar game. Of course, for games 10 to 15 or plus, these would be for games with longer game dev time spent on them. He was thinking if a $5 price is approximate, all right, and for opinion, where somebody puts not much time into it. To make it attractive to customers, also a low price mark, so people might pick it up. I think a $5 game is unattractive. Yeah, I would, even if you didn't spend a lot of time on it, I would look at other ways you can monetize the game. I mean, without getting into a full-blown free-to-play scenario, you know, look at what Fortnite's done. And I know it's like the example of the, the billion-dollar project, but hear me out. You know, everybody is so used to this industry coming along, and it's like, here it's free-to-play, but, you know, you got to buy more to get more tokens or coins or whatever it will be. You know, they started making tons of money selling that season past. Look outside the box. You know, if you're selling at $5, Steam's taking 30% of that. You know, it's a matter of you're not going to be getting a lot anyway. Look and think through how you can find other pricing, you know, other ways to monetize the game and then put it up for free on like Indie, on Itch.io or, or something like that. You know, it's putting it up for free isn't the same as putting it up for like $5, I mean, obviously, but you know, as long as you have other ways of monetizing it and you understand all the downfall and, you know, the negative aspect of it. But, you know, I would not, I mean, I, I still, I don't recommend launching a game at 5 or $10 because regardless of how much time you put into it or what anybody thinks, you're still, you know, hamstringing your own sales and, you know, your own brand by way of extension by, you know, putting such a cheap price tag on it. And it's kind of like if someone's going to pay five bucks for it, then they probably would pay 10 bucks for it. Yeah. They probably can afford to spend 10 bucks. Because, I mean, personally, I don't go around looking for $5 games. Because a $5 game to me would be like something I would play one time for like 30 minutes and then I would be done with it. But I don't want to spend five bucks on that. So. Exactly. And if I do, if I'm going to spend five bucks, I'm going to do it like I did with Fire and the Flood the other day and buy it on the e-store, I mean, on the Switch store, even though I already owned it. Because it's like, yeah, for five bucks, I'll play this game on the on the Switch. 
Uh, monetization, totally hear you. What do you say your price points were for minimum also? 10 to 15? 15 to 20. 15 to 20. But I feel like I personally more have to buy a nine a game that's nine ninety nine, and I won't buy a five dollar one. But if I'm looking at a game and I'm like, oh, this is five bucks and looks pretty cool, but this one's ten bucks, I probably will spend the ten bucks. You know, some successful devs have put out an initial version as free to gain traction and gather a following. If you're a lone dev making something small, then launching a full version for fifteen plus. That's like just making a demo. Yeah, there is. All right, so this is the, the cycle that our industry has gone through. There is absolutely nothing wrong with that because that is like the old shareware version. I mean, how did we how did we buy Doom back in the day? We got a free demo that we found somewhere, and then we sent some money down to Texas, and they sent us a, a disc with the full thing in it. Mm-hmm. You know, there is absolutely nothing wrong with that. You know, that was the whole model around you know the casual heyday ten years ago was, you know, you play a game for an hour and at the end of the hour, that's when, you know, you either had to put up money or, or not. You know, I would absolutely recommend doing a trial version or a demo version for free and then you know, not give the whole game away for free, you know, versus putting it out there and saying, oh, we're going to charge $5 for it. Now, my one side story nightmare that I will warn you about, we did a hidden object game for a major media company, you know, with my production studio, eight or nine years ago, knowing that the business model was, we're going to put out a demo, play it for an hour, and then you have to buy the rest of it. So the whole design philosophy around these games was you really concentrated on the user experience in that first hour because you wanted them to be engaged and you wanted them to keep playing. It's not like you didn't want to have content after that, but you really had to focus on that. The producer at our, our client, it was very much of the mentality that we had to like dumb everything down for the casual user, which we didn't agree with, but you know what, they're paying the bills. He dumbed it down so much that even an average hidden object, you, you know, player could finish the game within that hour. And then obviously it sold like shit. So, you know, you need to be cognizant of, you know, where you're putting that stop point in your demo or in that trial version. Are you putting a time limit on it? Or are you putting it at a cliffhanger in the story? Are you putting it at, you know, after a certain amount of battles? You know, that all is going to depend on the game. So basically what he did is he removed all the fun and all of the challenge out of the game and said, oh, but you can still complete it. That yeah. was totally... Candonian, what's up? That was not a good move at all. He should have just done a vertical slice in like one level or something. Well, but that wasn't the model then. I mean, to, to, to be on all these casual sites for the hidden object game, you know, the one and only model was... You play the game for an hour, then you either unlock the rest of it or you don't. You didn't have the ability to say, well, we're going to play until they go through three scenes or four scenes or something like that. That was just it. I had to play for an hour. So you had to design and plan for that drop point right there at the one hour mark. But if the player was good and the game was easy enough, then yeah, they could tear through the whole thing in an hour. And then it's like, no, of course you're not going to. Of course you're not going to do it. That makes sense. Wow, thank you guys so much. Thanks for that raid. That was pretty awesome. This is this has been, you know, midnight. The the most fun one we've done so far. Yeah. I love this. And thank you all for for showing up and for raiding and, and to, you know, listen to us rant and, and tear and all this other stuff. You know, and if any of you have questions, you know, there's links at the bottom, you know, where you can get in touch with me. You can you can, you know, message Indy and I. 
you can tweet a question, just do a hashtag indie game business on there. Let us know the questions and then we'll go and, you know, get through them in the next episode or we'll just write back and tell you. But I'm, I'm abs as long as there's questions coming in here, I'm going to sit here in front of the screen and, and answer them because this is why we do this. Why we do it, yeah. And you can check out my stream at twitch.tv slash indie right here. Indie's a real streamer, as my son says. I'm a real streamer, yeah. There, bam, right there. Because <laughs> you play games and all Friday. I do is talk about business. Thank you so much. Yeah, our next episode is going to be Wednesday at 11. Is that the time? Yeah, there's too many time zones. Wait. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Maybe it's because it's two your time, so 11. You're actually starting your indie game publishing side to the company later this year with events of the focus on it. Nice. You're a fake streamer too. You just talk business. What the, wait. We're actually starting our indie game publishing side to the company later this year. What is your, nice. what is your company again, Candonian? I know that plug we your company Candonian. Yeah. Plug it. Here's your, here's your prime opportunity to market your company to 20 people. <laughs> As soon as you type it in, I'll be like, oh, yeah, all right. And I will totally remember. Star Plantation. That's right. Nice. Nice, dude. Hold on, I'm Googling. What I am personally wanting to see, because I've gotten really into role-playing lately, so I've been doing a lot of role-playing on, on Conan in a private streamer server. I want, I want to see a, a nice multiplayer game that there can be like 200 people on the server. Well, they have it. It's World of Warcraft. <laughs> yeah, but you can't go and like build your own house and you can't do construction. Yeah, and I know. Like that. that's a, and that's why I'm like totally into the whole survival, you know, crafting world right now is I love those types of games. But the problem is, from a developer point of view, when you enable that, then you also enable a bunch of griefers to come through and you know chunk dynamite into your house as well. Well, that's why we have a private server. You can you can't not just anybody can get on the server. Oh, see, we have a private server with mods, um, and, and modifications in the game. All right, so so game on. No, not a good idea. So maybe make a demo that has an awesome intro, watchable tutorial, and when it comes to clicking the start button, that where it says it costs. No, not a good idea. But I'm I'm going with your sarcasm there because, you know, frankly, you have to say that because so many people in this industry go, oh yeah, yeah, that's a good model. We'll do that. No, no, it's not. Um, so if I get it right, say I have my product and I advertise it well, and we're fleshed out title with a good amount of content, then I'd make less money. When charging five pounds than I would when I was charging 25. I mean, in comparison, yes, but for me, it makes more sense. The percentage of people buying a $5 game overweighs the profit. And I can dig up the articles on this, Justin, but you're you're wrong. You're gonna sell, you know, you're not gonna lose as many sales because of a you know a good price point as you're gonna make up, you know, by having tons and tons and tons of people buy it because it's five dollars. You're actually going to you know, turn away people at that $5 price than you would at, you know, 20 or $25. So you're not looking at, it's, it's not an equal scale in the number of people that buy versus the number of people, you know, at that lower price point than the higher price point. You know, that's, you're actually going to turn away people for doing that. So, you know, get something in the middle, 
you know, I don't condone anything less than 15, but don't get wrapped up in that, you know, belief that, well, we're going to price it cheaper. So more people are going to buy it because it's not, that's not the, that's not the reality of the market. Thanks for listening to Indie Game Business. You can learn more about the show and our online business networking events at IndieGame.Business.